You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a PhD holding historian, a professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that makes legit, seriously researched American history come to life through entertaining stories. Join me for a chronological telling of the United States story, from the revolution to fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way from 1776 to the early 20th century. Listen to History That Doesn't Suck on Spotify. Hi, I'm Neil. And I'm Ken. And we are from the Triviality Podcast, a pub trivia-style game show where a lack of seriousness meets a little bit of knowledge. Join us each week for an hour-long game of general knowledge trivia featuring special guests from around the world, plus tons of extra themed episodes. If you want to improve your trivia game, or you just want to scream at us in your car when we get easy questions wrong, then we're the show for you. Find Triviality on all your favorite podcast apps. But you know that, because you're already listening to a podcast. Hub and Spoke. Audio Collective. Imagine two men. Let's call them Harry and Carl. On a boat. The mast is struck by lightning. And the two are thrown from the deck into the water. Struggling in high waves, they see directly between them a single plank of wood, big enough to sustain one of them, and only one of them. Harry and Carl each swim as fast as they can towards the slab, but Harry, the strongest swimmer, gets to it first and props himself up. Moments later, Carl approaches and shoves Harry off the plank, taking it for himself and kicking away while Harry eventually drowns. This is the situation dreamt up by Carneades, the head of Plato's academy between around 160 and 135 BC. Carneades presents this scenario and then asks us a question. Is Carl guilty of murder? If there had been two planks and Carl had hoarded both of them, the answer would be an obvious yes. And if Harry had tried maliciously to actively drown Carl, it would have been a clear-cut case of self-defense. But neither of those situations is the one Carneades asks us to consider. Harry was not threatening Carl, yet if Carl didn't harm Harry, he would die. So, was Harry's choice moral? Was it ethical? And finally, was it legal? This is The Constant, a history of getting things wrong. I'm Mark Chrysler. Some thought experiments, like the trolley problem, are destined to remain only that, hypotheticals, to be turned around on the philosophical tongue forever. But the plank of Carneades lacks that luxury, as its central conundrum has manifested in the real world many, many times. I ran across the most infamous of these manifestations while researching Chewing the Fat, our medicinal cannibalism episode from a few weeks back, and quickly became absolutely fascinated by it. Oh, and if that's not enough of a hint, let me say it explicitly. This story is definitely a bit gruesome. Though, as usual, I'm not interested in relaying to you the gross details for their own sake or in bloody purple prose. Still, if you're not up for murder and flesh-eating, this episode is not for you. But if your ears prick up at the sound of a good moral quandary, then boy, have I got one for you. This is a matter of guilt or innocence. Innocence not by reason of self-defense, but by a more obscure rationale. This week's episode, Necessity. Reason of necessity is a well-established legal defense. Firefighters can trespass, break windows, destroy property to create a firebreak, and do all sorts of generally illegal things if necessity dictates they do so to prevent greater damage from a fire. That cliched scene with the panicky husband speeding his dangerously pregnant wife to the hospital? Speeding or driving recklessly can be defended under emergency circumstances by necessity. The law varies state to state, province to province, and country to country. But to succeed in a necessity plea, there are generally four conditions. 
1. You must have believed there was an actual, specific, and immediate threat. 2. That you didn't cause or contribute to the threat. 3. That the threat could be avoided by no other realistic alternative to the criminal act. And 4. That the harm of that criminal act was not greater than the threat avoided. Now, let's apply those standards to Carl. Carl was under a very real and immediate threat of drowning, no question about that. It wasn't his fault, in whole or in part, that he was facing that peril. The only alternative available to him was to take the plank from Harry, so that's three criteria satisfied. But what about that last one? That the harm of the criminal act was not greater than the threat avoided. That is where things get a little wiggly. So, Let's go to our real-world plank of Carneades. This story also takes place at sea, and starts with the Mignonette, a 52-foot yacht built in 1867 and anchored in Essex. Sixteen years later, in 1883, an Australian lawyer bought the Mignonette and set up to have it sailed to Sydney. This presented a problem, because the yacht wasn't built for long voyages or large waters. Captain Tom Dudley sailed her around the coast with his wife and daughter from Essex to Southampton, where he came into port to ready for the voyage and find some sailors willing to take a single-mast pleasure boat 15,000 miles down the Atlantic, around the Horn of Africa, and across the Indian Ocean to Australia. The crew he eventually hammered together was made up of Tom Dudley himself, an experienced captain, Edwin Stevens, first mate, Edmund Brooks, an able seaman, and a cabin boy, Richard Parker, a 17-year-old orphan without sea legs. They struck out on May 19, 1884, and made uneventful passage south until July 5th, when they were around 1,600 miles northwest of the Cape of Good Hope in the Atlantic. The Mignonette was moving fast, with a strong wind in her sails, and Captain Dudley decided to slow the ship and fall behind the gale to give the crew a chance to rest and get away from the weather. When they heaved to to cut speed, a big wave came over, blowing away a critical portion of the planking, allowing water to pour under the decks. The mignonette was screwed. Dudley knew they only had a few minutes before it would be underwater, and he ordered the lifeboat lowered and the ship abandoned. All four men managed to get onto the 13-foot boat, although it sustained a hole, but they hadn't had time to grab much in the way of supplies a compass, an astrolabe for navigation, and, for food, two tins of turnips. No fresh water, either. Under moonlight, the four men bailed the small dinghy until around 11 p.m., according to Dudley's reading of the moon, when there was a sudden thud. Then, a wild thrashing. It was a giant shark, pushing and poking and biting at the boat. Dudley took one of the oars and beat the gnawing fish about the head until it was finally discouraged. And with that, things temporarily settled down. Settling down, though, was not necessarily good news. The lifeboat was smack dab between the remote islands of St. Helena and Tristan de Cunha, off of the normal shipping routes and without any wind or current to get them to safety. They dragged slowly towards South America, but that was 2,000 miles away. 2,000 miles of beating heat, salt water, and starvation. They saved the first tin of turnips, waiting two days until July 7th to open and ration them out. Dudley advised each of the men to make his share last two more days. As those two days were winding down, the able seaman Edmund Brooks sighted a sea turtle and, along with first mate Edmund Stevens, managed to catch it. That provided a fair amount of protein for the castaways. But Dudley's orders to maintain the blood for hydration were stymied by the salt water, which contaminated it. Between the 12 pounds of turtle meat, as well as eventually its bones, and the second can of turnips, the four managed to barely stave off starvation for the next 10 days. But in all that time, they were met by no rain, no fresh water. And by July 13th, they had started drinking their urine. It was either the 16th or 17th, 11 or else 12 days into their ordeal, that Dudley first proposed drawing lots. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. 
On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. It was, he assured his men, a custom of the sea that one be killed so that his flesh and blood might preserve the others. But Stevens, Brooks, and the young Richard Parker refused. Captain Dudley hardly dropped the issue. He reignited the debate over and over for the next three days. Then came the 20th of July, the day 17-year-old Richard Parker, novice cabin boy, fell ill. He'd taken to drinking seawater on the sly, along with first mate Stevens. Stevens was made sick, but still managed to remain upright and conscious. Parker was not so lucky. Somewhere in the next day or two, he effectively fell into a coma and was placed below the boards at the bow of the boat. From then on, the debate over drawing straws stopped. It was replaced by a different one, whether or not to kill Richard Parker. It's at this point in the story that things get a little hazy. There are somewhere around 10 accounts given of the events of the Midianette, four of which are from Dudley himself, and they vary like the Gospels on the particulars. Was one thief saved? Were both thieves damned? Were there no thieves at all? The most thorough chronicler of this tale is A.W.B. Simpson, professor of law at the University of Kent. Not surprisingly, nailing down the precise date of any particular development becomes difficult just a few days out from the sinking. But it's in the debate over whether to kill Richard Parker where the contradictions begin to mount. It was probably on the day of July 23rd that Dudley firmly suggested Parker be killed. And it's well enough agreed that then, that first time, both Brooks and Stevens refused, Brooks more adamantly. That night, while Brooks was sleeping, Dudley started in on Stevens alone. They were family men, with wives and children to look after, and Parker was sure to die soon anyway. Whether he said so at the time or whether it only came up later, Dudley argued that if they waited until Parker died on his own, his blood would be difficult to gather and more perilous to drink. And, like the Gospels, it was the blood that was the life. Stevens did not agree that night, but the two of them did assent to thinking the issue over more thoroughly in the morning. The next day, Dudley and Stevens decided. It was time. Whether Brooks agreed or disagreed, or whether he even knew in advance what was going to happen, depends on which confession you believe. At the least, he didn't aid in the murder, and after it, he ate and drank the most sparingly. Stevens held the limp boy down in case in his final moments he should jump up or kick, while Captain Dudley, penknife in hand, said a final prayer for the young orphan. Upon the amen, he stabbed the knife into Parker's jugular. In all of the accounts, Parker went easy. In most, he went silently. But in a few of the recollections, the men thought they had heard him gargle two final words. What? Me? It was July 24th, 1884. Five days later, while they were having their breakfast, as Dudley casually put it, they spotted a sail. The German bark Montezuma rescued the three remaining men on July 29th and deposited them at Falmouth in Cornwall on September 6th. There, as laid out by the Merchant Shipping Act of 1854, Captain Dudley, First Mate Stevens, and Able Seaman Brooks gave their official accounts of the journey and sinking of the Mignonette to the Customs House. In these tellings, each of them was remarkably forthright about the whole affair, 
including the slaying and eating of young Dick Parker. Dudley went so far as to reenact for the sergeant on duty just how he stabbed the lad, and when the officer took the penknife from him, Dudley asked for it to be returned, that he might keep it as a memento. While Stevens and Brooks didn't go as far as to restage their meals, they too were entirely frank. They didn't have to be, of course. There was no physical evidence of what they had done. They had plenty of opportunity to coordinate a story that might have saved them from shame and liability. No one would have second-guessed them if they had said Parker had been lost at sea or died on the boat. They could even have, at the least, said he had died naturally before they turned to eating him. But they didn't do any of that. To me, and maybe to you, that seems really curious. I can understand, in a very abstract way, how desperate people could turn to eating the dead. And I can understand, in a similarly academic fashion, killing for that reason. But why freely cop to it? The answer isn't clever or obscure. It's perfectly straightforward. For us, today, the tale of the mignonette is a remarkable and strange one. But for the people of 1884, including Dudley, Stevens, Brooks, and even poor Richard Parker, it was fairly commonplace. There was no need to hide the facts of what had transpired, because things like this were understood to sometimes happen. No, to the people of 1884, there was nothing strange about what had happened on that lifeboat. To them, the strange thing happened next. It was December 11th, 1710, when the Nottingham Galley wrecked off the coast of Maine. According to Captain John Dean, the British merchant ship was caught in a storm and crashed against the rocks near Boone Island, a barren rocky outpatch just 700 feet long and 300 feet wide. According to his crew, there was no bad weather. They said he wrecked the ship deliberately in order to secure an insurance payment, which, given what we learned way back in our Season 2 opener, Shipwreckless, seems completely feasible, especially since the crew reported he had first tried and failed to get the Nottingham Galley spotted by French privateers. If, indeed, it was Dean's plan to get himself shipwrecked, it wasn't a terribly well-thought-out one. Boone Island was just six miles off the coast, in sight of a beach near York, Maine. But the survivors had no way to cross the water and no way to make fire to signal for help. So, the crew of 14 sat on the jagged rocks, watching ship after ship roll by with no way to reach them. They passed the time by eating seaweed, huddling together against the New England Christmas, and dying slowly. After three weeks on the rocks, four of the men had expired, and the rest were close to following. It's at that point, looking around at their former friends, that the remaining crew of the Nottingham Galley decided to eat. Captain Dean had, in a former life, been a butcher, and the men asked him to, quote, make meat out of the ship's carpenter, who had recently passed. Days later, one of the bodies washed up on the mainland, prompting the locals to sail out and discover the malnourished, dehydrated cannibals. Neither the courts in Maine nor those back in England leveled charges against anyone involved. The Francis Spate, another English merchant ship, this one in the business of ferrying Irish indentureds to the Americas, broached in a snowstorm on December 3, 1836. It became impossible to pilot, and all the food and water stores were either lost or contaminated by seawater. The 15 men who survived the initial storm clung to the wreckage for 16 days before Captain Gorman suggested that four younger crewmen, who had neither wives nor children to care for, draw lots. Patrick O'Brien, 15, drew the short straw, and the ship's cook was ordered to slit his throat. After the cook's nerves failed, O'Brien attempted to save him the trouble by slitting his own wrist, but he too was unable to do the deed. Eventually, Captain Gorman himself took on the task. Three days later, a crewman and another cabin boy became, according to the logs, deranged from dehydration, and they too were killed and eaten. On December 23rd, the American ship Agonoria spotted the heap and came to its rescue. When they arrived at its waterlogged decks, they discovered Captain Gorman in the midst of eating the brain and liver of his cabin boy. When the 11 survivors arrived safely back in Limerick, they were charged with murder. 
and acquitted. Then, a common fund was established to help care for the cannibals and their families. Nobody who made it off of the Nautilus in 1807 was charged with a crime, or the Medusa in 1816, or the Peggy in 1765, or, perhaps most famously, the whale ship Essex, which inspired Herman Melville's Moby Dick. When Captain Dudley, First Mate Stevens, and Seaman Brooks returned to Falmouth on September 6, 1884, they were thorough and thoroughly honest in explaining the events that had led them there. Why shouldn't they have been? As far as they knew, they had done nothing wrong. They had merely followed the well-established custom of the sea, which untold hundreds had before them. So imagine their surprise when, after giving their depositions, Henry Lidicote, mayor of Falmouth, signed warrants for their arrest, charging the three with murder on the high seas. They weren't alone in that surprise. Public sentiment, the press, fellow seamen, nearly everybody was shocked, even outraged, to hear that Dudley and his men had been arrested. Even Mayor Lidicote himself visited the men before their arraignment to apologize and assure them they'd soon be free. They were given bail nearly unheard of for those accused of murder at the time. When Captain Dudley took the train from Falmouth to London to meet his wife, men at the station removed their hats and stood at attention for him. In the eyes of the people, Dudley wasn't just innocent, he was a hero. The Crown was eager to prove otherwise. Everybody, shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course, you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. Thing done weird things. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. The Constant is brought to you by BetterHelp. Let's be honest. Everybody has something in their life that gets in the way, in the way of success, relationships, or even happiness. BetterHelp Online Counseling is there to remove those things. With BetterHelp, you get access to a counselor personally matched to your needs. Depression, family conflicts, anxiety, self-esteem, grief, even sleep trouble. And if you're not happy with your counselor, you can request a new one at any time. They've got 3,000 professional licensed therapists across all 50 states and available worldwide via desktop, mobile web, Android, and iOS apps. With BetterHelp, you connect online at your own time and pace with video, phone, chat, or text services. All of them safe, private, secure, and confidential. Best of all, it's a truly affordable option. And because you're a listener to this show, you can get 10% off your first month with discount code the constant that's one word so why not get started today go to betterhelp.com slash the constant simply fill out a questionnaire to help them assess your needs and get matched with a counselor you'll love and start communicating with them in under 24 hours that's betterhelp.com slash the constant What made the Mignonette different to the state than all the similar tragedies before it? In a word, nothing. The truth is that the government had been meaning to put the kibosh on this so-called custom of the sea for quite a while, particularly under Home Secretary William Harcourt. Ten years previous, in 1874, the steamship Exune had caught fire near where the Mignonette went down, and three lifeboats were lowered. Two of them made it to the island of St. Helena, but the third, under the command of second mate James Archer, lost sight of the destination and had to try for South America, 2,000 miles west, instead. 
The boat capsized three times, ruining the food and water and sweeping away the instruments. Eventually, lots were drawn, and a young Italian cabin boy was selected for death. They drew the lots three times, and each time they came up against him. And here we should note, as A.W.B. Simpson does, that so many of these stories preserve this same pattern. Lots are drawn, and by coincidence, the weakest, youngest, or most foreign member gets the short straw. And even when the exercise is repeated, the result comes up the same. Whether to assuage public opinion or their own consciences, it was important that distressed sailors present the impression of fairness and impartiality in their morbid proceedings. But more often than not, this impression looks like a thin veneer, a flimsy pretense for picking off those whom the crew would prefer. Anyway, shortly after, as in regrettably shortly after, the Italian boy was killed and the eating began, James Archer and his remaining crew were rescued by a Dutch ship and eventually transported to Singapore. There was a deep level of confusion about what to do with James Archer at all. The Attorney General of Singapore first let them go, but then the British Home Office ordered them arrested. They had to be tracked down and served, but before a trial could begin, a jurisdiction had to be determined, and when that couldn't be easily done, they were freed. The English authorities didn't like that. They thought that if Archer were simply let go, it would only further cement the already troubling impression that maritime murder and cannibalism was legal. So, when he returned to London, it was suggested he be tried there. Fortunately for Archer, the depositions the crew had given were inadmissible, and no witnesses were willing to speak out against him. Before he could be brought to trial in England, it was determined that the risk of him being held innocent, and therefore truly codifying his behavior as appropriate, was too great, and the investigation was closed. A decade later, with the consistent and self-incriminating testimonies of Dudley, Stevens, and Brooks in hand, the government finally had the means to stop the gruesome practice. But given the public sentiment, if they were to secure a conviction, they'd have to get creative about it. On September 11th, the defendants were called to court. There they were met by Daniel Parker, brother to the victim, who shook hands with them and declared their innocence. Bail was set, and they were released on their own recognizance. While Dudley was being saluted in Paddington Station in London, Stevens and Brooks were returning to their families in Southampton, just up the road from the Parkers, who, apparently, bore them no ill will. While on bail, each of the three also had frequent occasion to give statements to the press, who were almost entirely sympathetic to their injustice. The trial had not even begun yet, and already the case against them appeared all but lost. But behind the scenes, a plan was developing. Originally, the judge called to preside over the trial was Sir William Robert Grove, but he was, somewhat mysteriously, replaced by Baron Sir John Walter Huddleston. There was speculation that Huddleston was brought on because he was understood to be sympathetic to the Crown, speculation that is supported by the eventual verdict. But we'll get back to that. On September 18th, proceedings temporarily began, but William Otto Adolf Julius Dankertz, the barrister assigned to prosecute, read the room and decided a different tack was called for. He announced that he planned to offer no evidence against able seaman Edmund Brooks so that Brooks could flip and become a witness for the prosecution. Brooks, it seems, took the deal, and the trial was once again reset to begin, for real this time, on November 3rd, against Dudley and Stevens alone, with Brooks free and clear, testifying against them. Barrister Dankertz was replaced by Arthur Charles for the prosecution, while the public had raised funds to appoint Arthur Collins for the defense. Charles's opening statement was fairly typical for a murder prosecution, with one curious difference. He made no secret of the terrible, unthinkable, and desperate conditions that had driven the defendants to the alleged crime. He admitted, in some detail, the horrid and potentially extenuating circumstances. A strange thing to do, given that the defense, in theory, was resting their case on that very ground. Both Baron Huddleston, the judge, and Charles were respectful and empathetic to Dudley and Stevens, emphasizing the prominence of their local positions, their upstanding family lives, and the unthinkable difficulties that had led them to sit in the courthouse. That, combined with the overwhelming swell of public support, 
gave Captain Dudley to believe that everything would turn out okay. But when it came time for Collins to present his opening statement, Baron Huddleston interrupted him and substituted a contentious dialogue during which he made clear that he was uninterested in hearing a necessity defense. Uh-oh. For the prosecution, Charles called a number of witnesses who had greeted the sailors upon their landing in Falmouth, who testified to the events as they had been told. Then he called Brooks, who retold his own harrowing version of what had unfolded, emphasizing that he had protested Parker's killing and had thought it wrong. On cross, however, Collins got Brooks to say that Parker was dying, indeed would have died regardless, and, most strikingly, got him to admit that he, too, had eaten and drank of Parker after the deed was done. In his closing statement, Collins outlined the defense, which we'll have better reason to return to in a few minutes, because before the jury had a chance to deliberate, Baron Huddleston interceded. Arthur Charles had argued that the jury must find Dudley and Stevens guilty of murder. Arthur Collins had argued that they must find them not guilty by reason of necessity. Huddleston presented an alternative to both of these. Instead of reaching a regular verdict one way or the other, he very firmly suggested that the jury could instead sign off on a special verdict, which only established the facts of the case. That the ship had wrecked, that the circumstances were trying, that Dudley and Stevens had killed Parker and eaten him. All of that was agreed to. The difficult position for the jurors was to determine whether the act was criminal or not. Huddleston's special verdict would absolve them of that responsibility, merely entering the facts into record and leaving the question of guilt or innocence to someone else. Special verdicts were not unheard of in English law, but none had been entered in the last hundred years, and they had never been used to pass the buck up to a higher court before, or since, for that matter. You can probably see why, as a juror, the offer might have seemed tempting, right? I mean, does this seem obvious to you? Because it sure didn't to me. The plank of Carneades had been thought up 2,000 or so years before Dudley and Stevens came to court, and in all that time, nobody had managed a definitive answer. On the one hand, it's easy to say that killing is wrong. Very easy. And the visceral reflex against cannibalism is difficult to put away. Yet, the situation in which Dudley and Stevens did their killing is, well, let's say unique. I won't try to put you in their shoes because, frankly, I wouldn't know how. I don't know. I hope never to know. The kind of hunger and desiccation, the grasping for life, the waves of existential terror and resignment, the sheer, isolated desperation that would cause me to stick a penknife into a young man's throat and drink the hot blood from his wound. I hope to never know that feeling, but I do know, through the Mignonette, through the Exxon, through the Francis Spate and the Whaleship Essex and the Donner Party and the 1972 Andes flight disaster and many other incidents aside, that the feeling is out there in the furthest reaches of the dark, and that if you find yourself in that particular dreadful wilderness, its grasp is powerful. I also know, to some reasonable degree, that if Parker had not died, then all four would have. Isn't it better that one should die that three might live? How could the moral, the ethical, or the legal conclusion be that there should be more death? If I'd have been on that jury, and Baron Huddleston had offered me a way to Pontius pilot myself out of the duty of making that determination, I think I would have taken him up on it. Even if he hadn't already written the special verdict himself for me to sign off on, and even if he hadn't put pressure on me to accept it, both of which he did. The jury, quite understandably, took Huddleston up on his special verdict, and with that, the case moved up to the Queen's Bench Division, a panel of justices who would deliver the final word on the fates of Captain Dudley and First Mate Stevens. On December 4th, the prosecution and defense once again faced off, this time explicitly and solely on the age-old question, can necessity be used as a defense for murder? Let's go over the criteria for that defense one more time. There must be an actual, specific, immediate threat, like, say, dying at sea. 
The defendant cannot have caused or contributed to the threat. The sinking of the mignonette and the circumstances of the lifeboat were not the fault of Dudley or Stevens. There can be no realistic alternative to the course taken. There's some small wiggle room here. Couldn't the sailors have just waited for Parker to die, if that was so imminent anyway? But Collins, for the defense, argued no. That while starvation was one thing, it was thirst that was the real threat. And if they had waited for Parker to die, there would have been no way to get his blood. So, finally, the fourth and most difficult standard. That the harm done by killing Parker was not greater than the harm that his murder had avoided. Maybe that doesn't feel so difficult to you. After all, as I said, the murder of Dick Parker meant that only one person died instead of four. But it's not as simple as that. I'm sorry to say, but we've got to take a look at three more cases that the prosecution, defense, and justices used to fully understand the ground they were working on. The first case may never have actually happened. We don't know the ship's name, and we don't know the dates. But, so the story goes, in the early 1600s, a ship with seven Englishmen wrecked near St. Christopher Island in the Caribbean. Finding themselves in the same dire straits as so many characters in this episode, the captain eventually suggested they draw lots. He came up with the short straw himself and accepted his fate. The remaining six eventually made it back to St. Christopher and were put on trial for murder. The judge pardoned them calling their actions inevitable necessity. Collins argued this case as precedent to the Queen's bench, but it was deemed inadmissible because there was no legal record of the case. The American passenger ship William Brown sunk in 1841 after striking an iceberg. The passengers and crew who didn't go down with the ship were put into a jolly boat and a longboat. The longboat was damaged and leaky, with eight sailors and 33 passengers heavily overladen it. When the rains and winds kicked up, threatening to swamp the craft, first mate William Rhodes gave the order. This won't do. Help me, God. Men, go to work. With that, the sailors began throwing passengers overboard, 16 of them in total. Through this terrible course, the boat was saved, along with the 25 people left aboard. For reasons that aren't totally apparent, one of the crewmen, and only one, was arrested. Maybe because he was the only one who could be found and served in Philadelphia. His name was Alexander Holmes, and he was charged initially with the murder of passenger Frank Askin. The grand jury refused to indict him on the basis of necessity. They did, however, eventually secure an indictment for the lesser charge of manslaughter and Holmes was convicted and sentenced to six months in jail, the minimal possible punishment. When Collins cited this mixed result to the Queen's bench, the justices were understandably unsure of whether the Holmes verdict spoke for or against Dudley and Stevens. Anyway, Holmes was an American, his case was American, and William Brown was American. So did this have any bearing on English justice either way? His quiver now emptied of legal precedents, Collins turned to a philosophical defense of the ethics of his clients. When he was finished, the judges retired to deliberate. Fewer than 10 minutes later, they returned, saying that they would need a few days to write up the decision and would deliver it on December 9th. But whatever the specifics of the language, they informed the room that the verdict would be guilty. Captain Dudley was outraged. And I don't know, maybe you are too? When I first heard the verdict, I was. It seemed to me that Dudley and Stevens had been railroaded, that what they had done was terrible, unthinkable, but also, ultimately, necessary. Then I read the decision. One last piece of precedent before I read it for you, though, because there is a case cited by the Queen's bench that is important to understand. The HMS Birkenhead was one of the Royal Navy's first ironclad steamships. In 1852, she left Portsmouth for South Africa, carrying somewhere just short of 650 passengers, British soldiers en route to war, and their families, wives and children. On February 26th, while hugging the coast to make speed, the Birkenhead hit a rock, opening a gash in her hull. In the minutes after the collision, 
at least 100 soldiers drowned as the forward compartment filled with water. There was a brief effort to pump it out, but it quickly became obvious that the ship was done. The longboats were lowered but quickly swamped. That left three small boats to evacuate by. Eleven years before, when the William Brown went down, the lifeboats were overcrowded and the crew threw the weakest, oldest, or least likely to survive into the sea. It was awful, but given the circumstances, what else were they supposed to do? The crew of the Birkenhead and the soldiers on board supplied the answer. They stood, silently, on deck, while the three small boats rowed to a safe distance, having been filled to capacity by the women and children. Ten minutes after the first hit, the ship struck against another rock and split in two, sinking the foredeck immediately. The stern quickened its descent, stuffed with men, still standing, silently, at attention. As the Birkenhead began its final slip, the horses were released in hopes they might get themselves to safety. And the captain called out, urging anyone who could swim to make for the boats. But Lieutenant Colonel Satan of the 74th Foot Soldiers understood that if they did, the lifeboats would be swamped or capsized. So the men held fast. The suction of the ship took many down with her. Those who survived it grabbed onto wreckage and tried to swim to shore. Eight horses managed, and some 150 of the men, too. The rest drowned, where they might have been able to save themselves at the cost of others. What necessity had they acted upon? The wreck of the Birkenhead established another custom of the sea, this one probably better known to you. Women and children first. On December 9th, Lord Chief Justice Lord Coleridge delivered the court's decision. Quoting Francis Bacon and Milton's Paradise Lost, it is, without question, the most poetic legal opinion I've ever read. It is also, I believe, among the most persuasive. And so I'd like to read a good part of it for you. Now, it is admitted that the deliberate killing of this unoffending and unresisting boy was clearly murder, unless the killing could be justified by some well-recognized excuse admitted by the law. It is further admitted that there was in this case no such excuse, unless the killing was justified by what has been called necessity. But the temptation to the act which existed here was not what the law has ever called necessity, nor is this to be regretted. Though law and morality are not the same, and many things may be immoral which are not necessarily illegal, yet the absolute divorce of law from morality would be a fatal consequence. And such divorce would follow if the temptation to murder in this case were to be held by law an absolute defense of it. It is not so. To preserve one's life is generally speaking a duty, but it may be the plainest and the highest duty to sacrifice it. War is full of instances in which it is a man's duty not to live, but to die. The duty in cases of shipwreck, of a captain to his crew, of the crew to the passengers, of soldiers to women and children, as in the noble case of the Birkenhead. These duties impose on men the moral necessity, not of the preservation, but of the sacrifice of their lives for others, from which in no country, least of all it is to be hoped, in England will men ever shrink, as indeed they have not shrunk. It is not correct, therefore, to say that there is any absolute or unqualified necessity to preserve one's life. It would be a very easy and cheap display of commonplace learning to quote from Greek and Latin authors, from Horace, from Juvenal, from Cicero, from Euripides, passage after passage in which the duty of dying for others has been laid down in glowing and emphatic language as resulting from the principles of heathen ethics. It is enough in a Christian country to remind ourselves of the great example whom we profess to follow. It is not needful to point out the awful danger of admitting the principle which has been contended for. Who is to be the judge of this sort of necessity? By what measure is the comparative value of lives to be measured? Is it to be strength or intellect or what? 
It is plain that the principal leaves to him who is to profit by it to determine the necessity which will justify him in deliberately taking another's life to save his own. In this case, the weakest, the youngest, the most unresisting was chosen. Was it more necessary to kill him than one of the grown men? The answer must be no. It must not be supposed that in refusing to admit temptation to be an excuse for a crime, it is forgotten how terrible the temptation was, how awful the suffering, how hard in such trials to keep the judgment straight and the conduct pure. We are often compelled to set up standards we cannot reach ourselves and to lay down laws which we could not ourselves satisfy. But a man has no right to declare temptation to be an excuse, though he might himself have yielded to it, nor allow compassion for the criminal to change or weaken in any manner the legal definition of the crime. It is therefore our duty to declare that the prisoner's act in this case was willful murder, that the facts as stated in the verdict are no legal justification of the homicide, and to say that in our unanimous opinion, the prisoners are upon this special verdict guilty of murder. The punishment meted out by the justices was death delivered, a confusing British term of art which, against all obvious reason, did not mean the men would be executed. Instead, they recommended that the Queen grant mercy. After some wrangling, Home Secretary Harcourt granted them a prison term of six months, and the rules of their imprisonment were relaxed. Tom Dudley, Edwin Stevens, Edmund Brooks, and young Dick Parker had embarked upon a perilous mission to sail a small ship not graded for the open seas across the world to Australia. They took on this task because each of them hoped that when they arrived in Sydney, they would find a better life and stay there. Instead, one of them was killed, two were imprisoned, and one bore the mark of testifying against his mates. After their sentences were served, Dudley and Stevens went their separate ways. Dudley did make it to Australia, where he became patient zero for a major outbreak of bubonic plague in 1900. In order to halt the spread of the disease, his body was cut into pieces, dunked in sulfuric acid, wrapped in cloth, and buried in an unmarked grave. Edwin Stevens stayed in England, where he went mad and died at a lunatic asylum in 1914. Edmund Brooks went back to sea, working on yacht crews for the rest of his life. In 1906, he crewed with a young man named Ben Parker, Richard's nephew. He asked and received forgiveness, like in the Gospels. And as for the unsavory custom of the sea, it never ended up in any court throughout the world ever again and neither has necessity ever since been successfully argued as a defense for murder. Today, if you find yourself lost at sea with another, a plank between you, it is still up to you to decide what to do. But 2,000 years after Carnades posed his famous dilemma, we now know what the law will say about your choice. And more importantly, we know why. Support for this episode comes from our Patreon supporters, especially Raquel Ankney, Maggie Taylor, and Andrew Murphy. Each of you, and the 120-odd others, helped to make this show possible, and I am grateful. If anyone would like to join their ranks, go to patreon.com slash theconstant and become a patron. We're just uh, 10 or so members short of our first major goal. If we can hit that number, I will begin working on that oft-rumored constant spin-off show. That's exciting. Wonder if we can get there before Christmas. It'd be a nice little present. Music for today's episode by Lee Rose Vare, Blue Dot Sessions, Kevin McLeod, and Short-Tailed Snails, who provided this arrangement of Ship in Distress, one of the many popular songs of the 1800s about survival cannibalism. It goes a little something like this. Seamen bold who plough the ocean See dangerous lands men never know It's not for honour and promotion No tongue can tell what they undergo 
In the blusterous wind and the great dark water, a ship went drifting on the sea. Her headgear gone and her rudder broken, which brought us to extremity. For fourteen days, heart sore and hungry, seeing but white water and bitter sky. Poor fellows, they stood in a totter, a casting lots as the witch should die. The Lord it fell on Robert Jackson, whose family was so very great. I'm free to die, but oh my comrades, let me keep lookout till break of day. Until next time. From Chicago, Illinois, where you can still see the tip of the silver spray jutting above the Lake Michigan waves in which she sank more than 100 years ago, when, after striking Morgan Shoals, her crew decided to stay on board her listing decks to make dinner. This has been The Constant. On September 18th, proceedings temporarily began, but William Otto Adolph, boy, that's a lot of names. You don't need that many names. You could cut easily three of those names and be fine. There were only like a couple hundred thousand people. You didn't, you don't need to make a thing. Okay. <laughs>